following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. If you're new with us, my name is Dave York. I'm the senior pastor here, and it's my joy to be able to preach God's Word to you tonight. So if you have your Bibles, let's open them to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to talk tonight from the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. The last week as a part of our short Christmas series, we, we looked at the famous passage in Isaiah chapter 9 where we saw that to us, the children of God, Jesus is the child who was born and the son who was given. We saw that He is the transcendent God, the one who is mighty, way above us, who is everlasting, yet at the same time, He is near to us as our wonderful Counselor and Prince of Peace. We notice that Jesus is the eternal Son of King David who sits on David's throne and has an everlasting advancing kingdom that God will make sure that it gets accomplished. Jesus fulfilled what the prophets foretold. And so this week... We're going to spend some time talking about Jesus coming and being the God-man. Now, I'm a child of the 80s. Anybody here a child of the 80s, right? Um, you might remember this fantastic gift coming out called the Rubik's Cube. How many of you got that for Christmas in the 80s? How many of you now got them again in the 2000s, right? Anybody? All right, a lot of us, right? Um, it's, it's making a huge comeback. Um, and I, I have some sweaters in my drawer that are just now making a comeback from the 80s. I'm excited to wear those again, right? I mean... Um, and I, I, they say about the Rubik's Cube something fascinating. They say there are 43 quadrillion combinations in the Rubik's Cube. And here's a crazy stat, that if you or I were to pick up the Rubik's Cube and make one random move every second, just one random move every second, math people who are way smarter than me say it would take us one quadrillion years to solve it. But if you had a book by the best-selling author Patrick Bozert, who was 13 years old when he wrote it, called You Can Do the Cube. It would take you a little more than a few hours, or for some of us like myself, a few months, a few days, a few weeks, right? I mean, it would take us a while, okay? Well, the Jewish people in the first century had their own conundrum that they were struggling to solve. When would their promised Messiah come? They read about Him coming in the Old Testament Scriptures, and they heard about Him through the Old Testament prophets, but when? How long would they have to wait? If you're looking in your Bible in the book of Matthew chapter 1, if you go back one page, you see the end of the Old Testament called the book of Malachi, and that little one page in between them represents 400 years of silence. Where the God of the universe stopped talking to His people about the coming of the Messiah. And then one day in Matthew chapter 1 as an example, we read that Jesus showed up, broke the silence, and literally shattered the darkness. The light came into the world as the light of the world, and the light was the life of men. But the Jews in the first century by and large missed Him. Some of them believed Him, but some didn't believe Him. So the Apostle Matthew, which we're going to study tonight, some 25 years after Jesus ascended to heaven, wrote a book to the Jewish people about Jesus. In a sense, he wrote to them a you-can-do-the-cube in a messianic version. 
helping them solve the risk, the mystery and the riddle of this coming Messiah King that they'd been waiting on. Now, Matthew spoke in very straightforward Jewish language to show the Jewish people that Jesus was their awaited and promised King. At the beginning of the book of Matthew, you'll read this when you read and start in the book of Matthew. Maybe some of you are going to do that at the beginning of your Bible reading plan next Sunday. And he starts with the genealogy of Jesus. But in the passage we're going to look at this evening, we're going to see that Jesus is the king in his birth. The birth of Jesus is called the incarnation. God becoming flesh. Now what's fascinating is, as the season of Christmas goes on with the lights and the gifts and the carols, we have a tendency to lose sight of the miraculous nature of the coming of the God-man. Wayne Grudem wrote it like this, It may be easy for us to lose sight of what is actually taught in Scripture. You can go and put that on the screen, Justice. Thank you. It is the incarnation, it is the incarnation, the most amazing miracle in the entire Bible. Far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing even than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become a man and join himself to a human nature forever so that infinite God became one person with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. You can see why this is way bigger than a few good Christmas jingles. That's what we're going to look at today. So stand with me. We're going to read Matthew 1, 18 through 25. At our church, if you're new with us, we stand at the reading of God's Word because we believe it is God's Word. It's inspired. We don't do this because we want you to be up and down in the service that people get weirded out about. That's We do it here because this is God's Word. This is the reading of God's Word, Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18. It'll be on the screen as well. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel commanded him, and he took his wife. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, the story of Jesus' birth is told in two particular Gospels, in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. You're going to find in Luke's Gospel that, that, that Perry read to us that it is given to us primarily from Mary's perspective. And it's concerned with showing us the way that Jesus, Jesus' birth was foretold to Mary and the effect that the incarnation had on Mary. But Matthew gives us the same story of Jesus' birth, but he does it from Joseph's, Joseph's point of view, from his vantage point. He does this so that we're introduced to Jesus' connection with his Jewish heritage and his Jewish history. Because remember, Matthew is writing to a distinctly Jewish 
crowd. So since Matthew's doing that, let's start with the very first point in your outline, which is Joseph the just. And you'll see in verse 18 that Joseph and Mary were betrothed. Now, betrothal was much more serious than our common engagements that we have in our particular culture because it was an unbreakable promise that typically happened a year before the actual marriage, and it carried almost the same weight as marriage. To get out of a betrothal required legal proceedings. It was a big deal. Yet Joseph and Mary's betrothal hits a huge snag when he finds out and we're told that Mary, who is a virgin, is found to be pregnant before they've ever consummated their marriage, creating a massive issue for Joseph. Now, the text tells us something about Joseph. It says that Joseph was a just man, which meant that Joseph gave special attention to Jewish laws. He was serious about his faith. This was a godly man. He wanted to obey the laws of God and the rules of God because he wanted to obey the God of heaven. And Joseph knew that in in Jewish law and Jewish custom, if a woman were pregnant before marriage, it created massive problems. On the one hand, if... It meant that probably she either had an illicit affair going on and, and her and her lover were to be put to death. On another hand, it could mean that she was violated without her consent and her violator would be put to death. But in either case, according to Jewish law and custom, since it was a moral violation, she was thought to no longer be a virgin. She was no longer eligible for marriage and must be given a certificate of divorce which required two witnesses and potential public shame and dishonor. This was a huge deal. So you can feel the weight of what this would have meant for Joseph, this man who's a just man wanting to obey the customs of the land, yet at the same time wanting to care for this woman that he is betrothed to. And it shows you the difficulty that he was facing. That's why his answer and what he does in verse 19 is remarkable, that he decided to divorce her quietly telling us that he's not only a just man, but he's also a compassionate and a merciful man who did not want to humiliate her publicly. Joseph cared deeply for Mary. Now, there's something about Joseph that I want to just draw out before we continue on, because I want you to consider this about the things we see in the Bible and the things that you see in your world. Do you ever notice, if you know your Bible at all, how understated things are about Joseph? We don't know a lot about this guy. He's hardly ever talked about. Yet in Scripture, it lays out a picture of a remarkably faithful yet compassionate man. He's just a consistent dude. We know that he's a carpenter. Later, he raised a family in Nazareth, which was like a small town like Roseburg, a very small town that people even wondered, like, does anything good come out of Nazareth? He was a father of a large family. That's We don't know much else about Joseph. And here's a question that you should ask about a guy like Joseph and why is he mentioned in the Bible? Is there a place in our social media world for a consistent, faithful, no-nonsense guy or people who just want to obey God, raise a family, and never be noticed? Is there a place for somebody like that? There's nothing out of the ordinary about Joseph. He's just a regular guy that you'd love for your kids to apprentice under or for him to coach your little league team. He's that kind of guy. Is there a place in God's kingdom for those kind of people? Well, the answer, as we see in this story of Joseph, the answer is absolutely yes. There's a place in God's kingdom for ordinary, sinful, imperfect, normal people. This means 
This means there's a place in God's kingdom for people like us. And Joseph is just a picture of this for us. He's Joseph the just, just a normal, everyday, ordinary guy taking his place in the role that God has given him. Now something happens, though, to Joseph's just yet compassionate desire for divorce. An angel of the Lord visits him and gives Joseph a remarkable vision. This is our second point. You can see this in verses 20 through 23. The revelation that the angel gives him about what is to take place must have sent shockwaves down the spine of Joseph. I can't imagine being in this moment wondering what in the world is happening. And an angel visits him to tell him certain things are going on that are beyond Joseph's power or ability. He's told that this pregnancy, Mary's pregnancy, was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. See, one of the things about Matthew's gospel is his insistence on showing how the Old Testament scriptures are revealed in Jesus being the Messiah. And here in Matthew chapter 1, he showed Joseph and the Jewish people and us that, 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 this, that this Mary's pregnancy and Jesus' birth fulfilled everything the prophets had spoken about. The prophets, specifically Isaiah, already said the Messiah would come by being born of a virgin. You can see this in verse 23 when he quotes Isaiah chapter 7. Matthew connects Mary's virgin pregnancy with Isaiah's prophecy. This would have been a huge clue for the, the, the Jews as they read. This would be the moment, the opening pages of their book, you can do the cube for them to see the mysteries being able to be connected to Christ. The Messiah was to be born of a virgin, and Mary, that virgin, was Mary. But how could a virgin become pregnant? That's a bizarre question, because it's not natural. Yet twice in the text, verses 18 and verse 20, Matthew mentions how. The pregnancy was conceived by the Holy Spirit. This means, and this tells us, that this pregnancy was supernaturally endowed and was a work of God. Mary was pregnant with the promised Messiah, this promised king who would come. But why would this promised king even come? Why would he come this way? Why would he come? And verse 21 tells us clearly that you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. See, Joseph, as Jesus' earthly father, was tasked by God to name the Messiah Jesus, which means... Jehovah saves. And Jesus came to save his people from their sins. But there's a problem with this coming like this. The Jewish people weren't looking to be saved from their sins. They were looking to be saved from the Romans. They were looking to be saved from tyranny. They wanted to be saved from their politicians. They wanted Israel to be restored to her former glory. And friends, listen, that's not like a lot of us sitting in the room. We're probably not looking to be saved from our sins. We don't think we've sinned against God at all. We're looking to be saved from our boss or our work. Looking to be saved from our politicians or from big government getting its way into our world. We're looking to be saved from our poverty. We're looking to be saved from a lack of education or a lack of opportunity. But the promised Messiah was to come to save us from our sins. This is why he came. But you have to dig even further, though, to ask, why was this God's plan to save his people through Jesus being born of a pregnant virgin? Why not use a normal conception? Right? Why not do something natural? 
Well, the virgin birth tells us a few things about God's plan for salvation. The virgin birth tells us that God, the God of the universe, will save his people from their sins by his own means and his own power. In other words, God doesn't need us to save us. You have to love a God who overrules, overrides, and overcomes all obstacles to save his people. And you have to love a God who doesn't need anything beyond his own power to save his people. See, the virgin birth tells us that God will save his people by his own means, by his own power, so that he alone will be glorified in the salvation of his people. But it also tells us that God's way of salvation is by uniting heavenly and human. By uniting heaven and earth, or uniting the divine and the human in one person. This is why the Holy Spirit conceived the child in the Virgin Mary. God became man, 100% God and 100% man. If Jesus were born by natural conception of a man and a woman... While he would be a human like us, he wouldn't be God. And if he were to just drop into this earth like Superman did, in that little carriage thing from Krypton, or the way that Greek and Roman gods were portrayed, he would have been God, but he wouldn't felt what we feel as humans. In being heavenly and human, he is the promised one who has come as the offspring of a woman or of a human who is powerful enough to crush the Satan's, to crush our enemy's head and redeem us from our sin, as the Bible tells us. God and man in one person. The God-man. See, Muslims can't buy this. Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe it. No other religion in the world, in the history of the world, has thought of this. But the God of the universe has not only declared it, the God of the universe has done it in a virgin birth of our Savior, Jesus. See, the virgin birth also shows us that while God united divinity and humanity in one person, in that moment, God was also upholding the sinlessness of the Messiah who was to come save us from our sin. The virgin birth makes it possible that Jesus' true humanity was truly human, yet without the sin of being a human. Jesus is the only man in the history of the world who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and not conceived by man. Sinclair Ferguson wrote it like this. The function of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' conception was to maintain the holiness, the sinlessness of the one who was to be born. Jesus is the one who was born not of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The conception of Jesus is uniquely from the Holy Spirit, which preserves preserves both the reality of his union with us in genuine human nature and his freedom from the guilt and curse of Adam's fall. See, this tells us that Jesus' birth as the God-man did not happen because of Mary's sinlessness or Joseph's obedience. It happened as an act of God's grace upon his people And God chose to use Mary and Joseph, two normal, everyday people, in His glorious plan to save us from our sins. Friend, the virgin birth is an act of God, whereby God supernaturally bypassed the sinfulness of our first father, Adam, 
and brought Jesus into the world to be our God-man, to be our Savior. It's God's plan to save his people from their sins through supernatural means that only God can do. It's God's plan to bring our Savior, Jesus, into the world. It's God's plan to bring Emmanuel, God, with us. See, Superman is cool and all, but really, can you relate to that guy? I mean, be real. I mean, he runs too fast. He jumps too high. And listen, he sees through everything, which is really creepy. I mean, that's, that's a really weird characteristic of Superman. But Jesus Christ is God. Greater than Batman or Thor. Transcendent above all things and beyond us. Yet man, imminent, near, and close to us. He not only relates to us as a person in our weaknesses and our sufferings, but he is powerful enough as God to overcome our sin, rescue us from ourselves, and protect us from Satan himself. What a God this is. No one else can do that. This is God's plan to save us from our sins. See, this is why if you're a Christian, the virgin birth is a non-negotiable in the Christian faith. We we would call that here at CLF, it's a closed-handed issue. It's one of those things we would divide over, we'd fight over, we'd die over. Because without the virgin birth, the full scope of Jesus' mission on earth to save us from our sins could be minimized and dismissed altogether. But because the virgin birth is true, all of his miracles then are true, and his saving work is fulfilled and completed, and it is true as well. And what this tells us is, Jesus came... Because we need to be saved from our sins. See, our rebellion against God is as natural to us as breathing. Our sin has separated us from Almighty God and made us targets for God's wrath. But listen, Jesus came to save us from this. So have you put your faith in Christ? Have you decided that Jesus is truly the God-man who saves you from your sins? Have you... And if you are believing that, are you marveling at it? Are you, are you worshiping Jesus because of it? Are you amazed at God's good grace to act by God's power to save you? And is God's power alone to save you? R.C. Sproul explained this well when he said this. We see then the purpose of the first advent of Christ. The Logos took upon himself a human nature. The Word became flesh to effect our redemption by fulfilling the role of the mediator between God and man. The new Adam, Jesus, is our champion, our representative, who satisfies the demands of God's laws for us and wins for us the blessing that God promised to his creatures if we obeyed the law. Like Adam, we failed to obey the law, but the new Adam, our mediator, has fulfilled the law perfectly for us and won for us the crown of redemption or the crown of salvation. That is the foundation for the joy of Christmas. Have you ever noticed that tomorrow morning you're going to get up and maybe tonight you do that in your own homes? How li- there's a little letdown after you open all the gifts. You know that feeling? I mean, I, I go through it. I have a little bit of moment of de- 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 depression and like it's over. We've been working all year to get to this moment and now it's taken us two hours and it's done. And wow, that was fantastic. And now we have to wait 365 days a year again. And I have a little thing on my watch that tells me how many days till Christmas and it's going to click back to 365 and be really weird. It's a little letdown. And the reason it's a letdown, because those presents and gifts aren't meant to satisfy you. 
I hope you understand that. The presents and gifts that you are to receive, you're going to receive potentially tomorrow, or maybe you've received them tonight, or maybe just a friend has written you a card, and it brought joy to your heart, is simply this. It's a breadcrumb leading you to the throne of God for the greatest gift of all, which is Jesus. It's a reminder a greater gift has been given. Way bigger than that car in your driveway tomorrow. Way bigger than that PS5 that you might get tomorrow. Way bigger... Way bigger. So listen, trust Christ. Worship Christ because He has come. Now let's just go back to our story briefly because we've got to imagine the wow factor for a moment with Joseph, right? I mean, can you imagine waking up from your dream, knowing that this is what you have to do and knowing what God has told you to do? And the angel told told Joseph, don't be afraid and don't divorce Mary because she's the virgin the prophets talked about. And this pregnancy, Joseph, while it's untimely for you, is the work of God to save His people from their sins and and bring the God-man, Emmanuel, into the world. See, that's why Joseph's moves and his actions in verses 24 and 25 are so remarkably impressive. Joseph set his heart to obey God by taking Mary as his wife, and he names Jesus, Jesus. Simple little acts. And these two acts, you're going to notice something about Joseph. He did something, he represents something, and and he accepted something. And that's our last point, is Joseph's obedience, ancestry, and acceptance. You're going to notice first, Joseph obeyed God rather than Jewish traditions. What did Jewish, What did he do? He's not a radical rebel here, but it's important to the story of Jesus. Joseph, in this moment, believed that obedience to God was his highest calling on earth. He believed that God was his king, not the Jewish traditions or the Jewish leaders or Jewish elders. In this moment of obedience... Joseph foreshadowed the type of life that Jesus, the God-man, was about to live on earth. Matthew's going to show you that in the story of his letter. Jesus perfectly obeyed God. Matthew shows us that Jesus was far more concerned with God's commands than he was men's traditions. Jesus reintroduced the proper use of what God's law is really all about, while the Jewish people fought him all the way to the cross where they eventually put him to death. Jesus set his face and his heart on God's plan for salvation while the Jews were lost in their traditions. Jesus shows us that obedience to God is more important than obedience to man-made obligations or traditions. And Joseph just foreshadows this for us a little bit. But notice that Joseph also represents something. Notice this little phrase in verse 20 that I don't want you to miss. It's a subtle statement. It almost passes right over the top of it. It says, Joseph the son of David. This reference to David is a reference to the kingly line of David, the most famous, victorious king in Israel's history. He's the one that God promised he would have an eternal son who would sit on his throne forever. So here's what you have in Matthew chapter 1. You have a descendant of David, Joseph, whom God gave the authority as his father to name Jesus doesn't seem like a big deal, but in this moment, when Joseph is in the line of King David, he is acting as a representative of King David's line by naming Jesus. In this simple act of naming Jesus and taking Jesus's mother as his wife, Joseph is a representative of the line of King David. He's representing the acceptance of Jesus as the Son of God, as the Messiah, 
in David's kingly line. Don't miss this. It's an important thing. See, Joseph's obedience doesn't make him the story's hero, but it's noteworthy. Because Joseph, like Jesus, was concerned with doing the will of God in the line of David. And his representative representation of King David in naming Jesus and obeying God points us to the fact that Jesus is the true Messiah, the true king, the true king in David's Davidic line. Now these acts of Joseph reveal something about him. They reveal that he also accepted something. He accepted God's plan of what God laid out here in Matthew chapter 1. He accepted God's plan that this indeed is God's plan to save his people from their sin. I mean, think about it. Could, couldn't have Joseph have taken things in his own hands? Couldn't have Joseph have thrown his hands up in the air and said, God, what a stupid idea. How in the world are you going to impregnate a, a virgin? How are you going to do this idea? How are you going to conceive this child and make this happen? And Jesus, what kind of name is that? Why not Joseph like my fathers have named me Joseph? Why not we keep the family name going? He could have done a lot of different things, but that's not what Joseph did. Instead, Joseph obeyed God. He accepted what God had said. And by accepting what God has said, Joseph, in a very subtle way, basically says he recognized himself as a sinner. He recognized his need for this Savior to come. He needed God with us. He needed Emmanuel to be with him. Joseph obeyed God because he accepted that this was God's plan to save Joseph and God's plan to save his people. Joseph believed that Jesus was his Savior, his one who has come to save him from his sin. And friends, that's what this scene actually does to you. It challenges you with a question. Whom do you say Jesus is? Who do you say that he is? Is, is he your Savior? Is he your King? Is he the one who has come for you? Who do you say that Jesus is? Is not, not this idea that Jesus is good for others who go to church and that's really good for them, but not good for me. Or I brought some friends and this message I hope is really good for them, but it's not really needed for me. Instead, Joseph, if he were in the room, would be standing up saying, I need this message. I need this savior. I need this king. See, this message that we get from Matthew chapter one is a, ch is challenging our presuppositions about Jesus Christ. And right here in the virgin birth account, we are confronted with a historical, biblical fact. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin and it fulfilled what the prophets foretold. This means he's the promised Savior King who has come to save his people from their sins. So the question is, do you believe that? Have you put your faith in Christ? Do you live as if Jesus is your king. Do his commands mean more to you than cultural norms, family traditions, and religious ceremonies? Do his commands and his laws and his spirit direct the way that you live your life? Do you live as if Jesus is your king? Where does his kingship need to be seen in your life? Is it in your marriage? It is in your relationships at school, at work. Is Jesus your Messiah King who has come for you? And have you trusted Him as the one who has come to be the forgiver of your sins and the only one who can make you right with God? Because friends, listen, this is the true story of Christmas. Let's pray.
Father, we are freshly reminded tonight that the incarnation of the Son of God is a supernatural act of Your grace. And when You set out to save Your people, You did it by Your power, by Your might, by Your wisdom, and by Your counsel. And it is a moment where we are reminded that nothing can stop you from saving your people. It's also a reminder that Jesus' coming is real. In the Christmas season, that we sing these songs and we celebrate by being together with family and friends and giving out gifts is a simple reminder, a big reminder, that Jesus came to save us from our sins and make us right with God. Tonight, Father, I pray that you would stir hearts that may not know Christ. That you would cause them to repent and trust Jesus. And if that's you tonight and you're in the room or you're listening online, then just simply turn your heart and your attention to Christ and just tell God right now that you believe that Jesus came for you. And you want to give your life to Him. So, Father, we we as Christians as well acknowledge that we get lost in all the stuff at this season. And we need a regular reminder of your love for us, and it's found in the cross. We need to be reminded regularly that you coming for us, Jesus, is the greatest miracle of all. And you have come. And that though we were rebels and we were separated from you because of our sin, and though we were dead in our sin and transgressions, you... You came after us. You are our Messiah King who has come. And you're the Messiah King who is our Emmanuel, who is with us. And tonight we worship you. We celebrate your great name. And we thank you. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.